Those Winter Sundays by Robert Hayden. Sundays, too, my father got up early and put on his clothes in the blue-black cold. Then with cracked hands that ached from labor and the weekday weather made banked fires blaze. No one ever thanked him. I'd wake and hear the cold splintering, breaking. When the rooms were warm, he'd call. Slowly I would rise and dress, fearing the chronic angers of that house. Speaking indifferently to him, who had driven out the cold, and polished my good shoes as well. What did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? The Whipping The old woman across the way is whipping the boy again and shouting to the neighborhood her goodness and his wrongs. Wildly, he crashes through elephant ears, pleads in dusty zinnias, while she, in spite of crippling fat, pursues and corners him. She strikes and strikes the shrilly circling boy till the stick breaks in her hand. His tears are rainy weather to wound-like memories. My head gripped in bony vies of knees, the writhing struggle to wrench free, the blows, the fear worse than blows that hateful words could bring, the face that I no longer knew or loved. Well, it is over now, it is over, and the boy sobs in his room. And the woman leans muttering against a tree, exhausted, purged, avenged in part for lifelong hidings she has had to bear. You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same Welcome all to this week's Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm going to be your host this week. I'm David Grubbs. I'm an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. With me this week is Matthew Block in, I keep wanting to say Swan Lake, but it's a river, Manitoba. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. That's right, correct. Swan River. Swan River, yeah. Swan River. All right. The other one's Tchaikovsky. (laughs) Also with us is Michael Farmer. How are you, sir? I'm good. In Sandy Springs? Sandy Springs. The sandiest of springs. Am I the only one that's not in a place that's named for a body of water? You're named for a great great general, aren't you? Houston? Sam Houston? Isn't he a general? Oh, he was kind of one of a, sort of a Texas founder kind of guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, something like that. That's cool. I mean, we've got a lot of water around here, so maybe it counts. Oh, well, dear listener, uh, what you just heard were readings of two poems by Robert Hayden, uh, who is uh, who is our topic this week, and they are our topic this week. But before we get into that, is anything new on the network? The only thing on the calendar, David, is a Profiles interview that you conducted, so why don't you uh, introduce that? 
Yeah, I, I've talked with uh, Jeffrey Niehaus, uh, who's an, uh, a, an Old Testament professor at Gordon-Conwell. Uh, his book is When Did Eve Sin? The Fall and Biblical Historiography. Um, he's mainly a guy who wants to quibble with all the sorts of readings of Genesis 3 that try to um, uh, track Eve's psychology in a way that keeps pushing the fall back into into her motives and her desires. Uh, it's it's an interesting book. A little book. Cool. Yeah. Well, as I said earlier, today we're highlighting Robert Hayden, and we're doing it during Black History Month, even though that isn't why. Uh, he's been on my mind because uh, I recently taught one of those poems, the first one I read, uh, in a composition course uh, this semester. And, and in fact, that's one that I do regularly in the spring. So, Michael, who, who was Robert Hayden, and how does the coincidence of this episode in Black History Month fit with his ideas about himself and his poetic vocation. We, we should also note that the episode is not actually coming out during Black History Month because we were delayed a, a week. So actually it's coming out. This is the first episode of March, which might be just as appropriate. It's certainly less ironic because Robert Hayden, um, Robert Hayden kind of got forgotten in some ways by the, the black arts movement of the 1960s and 70s because he didn't really want to write quote-unquote black poetry, even though he was himself African-American. Now, I, I was surprised when I read about his life because I, I too, taught uh, those Winter Sundays many, many times. And I had assumed that he grew up in a rural environment, and I don't know why. I thought that, um, except that, that that poem has kind of a rural uh, tinge to it to me. He actually grew up in the in a ghetto in Detroit, and he, he had a, a fairly difficult childhood. Um, his parents were not married, and uh, rather than being raised by his mother, he was raised by a foster family who lived next door to his mother, although she seems to have frequently interfered with their life and, and tried to get him back, and, and so th there's that. There's also the fact that his foster family um, were very violent with each other and apparently with him as well. So he, he had a, a very difficult environment he was coming out of. And you, you add to that the fact that he was not well-liked at school. And you, you've got a, a recipe for turning him inward on himself, which is exactly what happened. And uh, that's how he became interested in literature and in poetry in particular. And he ended up... Um, he ended up becoming a very popular and famous poet. He's he's actually the first uh, African American poet laureate, although they didn't call it poet laureate at the time. It was called consultant in poetry to the Library of Congress. Uh, and he's also probably the most famous poet of the. Baha'i, am I pronouncing that term correctly? I've only seen it written, of the Baha'i faith, which is a, a kind of 20th century religion that combines all the other religions and says that they're all in some sense true and, and thus transcends all of them. I would say he's the most famous person to be a Baha'i, except Rain Wilson, Dwight from The Office, is very, very vocally Baha'i. Um, so I, he's probably more famous than Robert Hayden, although Robert Hayden is probably the better poet. <laughs> is Rain Wilson a poet? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. He's a, po a poet in a manner of speaking, don't you think? 
sure. And, and the the Baha'i thing is very important. He's an adult convert to that religion, and um, it's it's very it's very important to him um, that it is so universalist because that's what keeps him from wanting to join the Black Arts movement in the 1960s and 70s. He he sees himself as writing for something beyond a sectarian. Uh, audience, whether that's a religious sectarian or a um, or a racial sectarian audience, and and so he 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 wants to write something that is for everyone and of everyone in a way that was not popular in the Black Arts Movement. I think it's safe to say. So he is, you know, again, it, it is ironic that you wanted to study him during Black History Month because I I don't think I don't think he would be terribly fond of that uh of that decision and and also a lot of the poets who would fit more neatly into the 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 whole black history month um approach uh would have been skeptical of him at the time anyway i don't really have a sense of what his uh what his standing is in contemporary african-american literature whether he's whether he's considered a giant in that certainly that those winter sundays is in uh every freshman comp syllabus probably in the country just because it's a great poem and it's easy to say a lot of things about it and it's easy to get students to say a lot of things about it so what have i left out that you find uh you find essential to hayden david one thing that i i think is interesting even though um he he did not want to be sort of filed under under that exclusive uh under that exclusive title or label or category nonetheless he wrote many poems um about the experience of being uh being black in america and and in particular about the history of of africans in america um uh the uh, he has a poem about Nat, the Turtle Rebellion. He has a poem about Frederick Douglass. He has a poem about the Middle Passage and, and, and slave trade. So it's not that he never touches on those things. Um, it's that he didn't he didn't want to be seen as um, exclusively about that, uh, defined by that. Uh, so I. I, I, I find that really um, I find that really interesting about them about him because uh, one of the one of the things that I like to do when I teach this poem is after we've talked about the poem to ask them what they imagine the speakers is like and what they imagine the speaker's life is like right and then I tell them who he is and where he's from and some of them, some of my students have reacted to that to that information um, with further interest, and some of them act as if they've been tricked. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I'm not the only one who thinks of th- thinks of him as a rural writer. Yes. I mean, part of it is when I used to teach this poem, it was invariably February in rural Minnesota. So, so I mean, part of it is just the the environment in which I encounter this poem makes me think certain things about its author that are obviously not true. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Well, uh, Matthew, let's let's start talking about those winter Sundays. Uh, 
we've read the poem, so just sort of reading it on its own, how would you reconstruct the story that it tells? Who is speaking and what has happened and how does the speaker feel about it? Mm -hmm. In those winter Sundays, Hayden is is telling the story of his youth, or, or perhaps more accurately, he's telling the story of his father from the vantage of his own childhood. Um, even on Sundays, Hayden tells us his father would arise in the blue black, pardon me, blue black cold to kindle a fire to heat the home. So there was no day off from this kind of work, even though he spent the rest of the week in physical labor in the winter weather. He'd still get up every Sunday early to light a fire, just as he presumably did every day. Um, it's thankless work. Um, in, fa- in fact, Hayden explicitly says that no one ever thanked him. But Hayden remembers awakening to the sound of the fire crackling, the cold splintering breaking. Uh, When the house was warm, his father would call him to rise out of bed. And Hayden would slowly get out of bed and dress. But there was never uh, any thought of thanks in his mind. Instead, he was dreading, dreading this simmering anger, which serves as a background to life in the home. That fear and that 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 fear of that anger meant Hayden never thanked his father for making the fire nor for shining the shoes which he would presumably be wearing to church, uh, nor for any of the myriad other services his father rendered him in day-to-day life. Instead, we, we read that he treated him with indifference. But now as an adult, and it's, it's the adult Hayden who's writing the poem, he can look back and see the love which stood behind his father's back. The home may have been afflicted with this chronic anger, Hayden says, but even here, uh, there were these expressions of his father's love, um, expressions that were made in, in act, if not if not ever in word. Um, so we see Hayden in this poem here communicating a sense of regret uh, that he never recognized that love at the time, that he never did say thanks to his father for driving away the cold day in and day out. But and there's this beautiful line at the end, uh, which which you already read, but he laments, what did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? And so this poem then is um, um, the adult Hayden reflecting on this lonely office of love that his father rendered on a daily basis. Yeah. What would you add to that, Michael? Yeah, I, I think what's what's essential in terms of the narration of this poem is that the it the narrator is the son, but the focal point of the poem is the father, and the, the son kind of recedes uh, in an in an in an opposing motion to what actually happened at the time, where the father receded. The father is on the outside of the son's world when it's happening. And now there's this reversal whereby the son recedes and is is on the outside of the the father's world, and it it it's it's shown that what the father did is the really essential thing. While whatever the narrator was doing in his in his room while the father was sleeping, I suppose, turns out to be very unimportant and selfish. That 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 reorientation. Um of who, who is actually the subject of this poem, I think is uh, a really a really good point to make. Um, and also the point that you made, Matthew, of this being uh, a poem with really um, 
paired perspectives coming from the same person, but the same person at two different stages. Um, mm-hmm. And that, you know, my, my students uh, have so sometimes had had a little trouble articulating. Like it seemed like they understood clearly what the poem was doing, but figuring out how do I say what how do I say what it's doing um, is has sometimes been a challenge. Uh, but yeah, that that's that issue of the of the speaker and when in time the speaker is uh, is is important. One of the elements, Michael, that I think really merits attention is its use of Sunday as both a context and uh, I think as a symbol. So what does Sunday mean in this poem to the father and to the son? And what else might it mean for us as readers and as Christians? Right. And and a lot of this stuff is implied, although it's implied pretty heavily um, but it, it is not stated out right. So the first thing you notice, literally the first thing you notice in the poem, is Sundays 2. Um, Sundays 2, my father got up early. So the idea is, the other six days of the week, this guy is apparently getting up and going to work. Um, and on Sundays, he also has to get up early and work, although here he's working directly for the good of his family rather than... Um, rather than at whatever whatever job he's doing for money. Sundays, too, my father got up early and put his clothes on in the blue-black cold. So, so there is no day of rest for this father. Um, and in fact, uh, he's also polishing the narrator's shoes, which, as, as Matthew suggests, means they're probably going to church. And it would you would think of it as being the narrator's job to polish his own shoes to, to, you know, look his best for church. But in fact, the, the father who, you know, we know from that second, um, that second stanza is a violent man is doing this tiny unseen act of grace so that his son can look good and present himself to the world and to God. Um, and he's, he's doing it without the narrator even noticing it, maybe polished polished my good shoes as well. Um, it's it's this afterthought to him. He may not even have noticed it at the time, but here he notices it, and it, it it seems to me essential that the father, in addition to making the house warm, is also doing this um, this invisible act of of service as well. And then the other thing you see about it being Sunday is that last, those last two lines, what did I know, what did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? Uh, an, an office is a set prayer for a particular time of day. So the idea is by the father getting up early and doing this, he's praying, um, praying for and on behalf of his family, uh, which again is something the son just doesn't notice at all, just completely takes for granted in the way that uh, preteen and teenage children do take everything for granted, everything that's done for them for granted. So yeah, I, I think the religious aspects of the poem are subtle and implied rather than directly stated, but I, I, I do think they're essential. I think this is a, a poem about religion uh, in, in a real sense. I always hesitate to kind of make that move in class because I know, you know, 
what I haven't necessarily told my students because I don't, you know, I don't sort of prep them with all this biography and then ask them to read the biography in. Um, but I know that he's, he's Baha'i, but, and I think, oh, well, is that going to prevent me from making these other moves? But then I remember, no, but he, he was, he was a convert. He was an adult convert. And, um, one of the beauties of, you know, of the fact that he was a convert to that meant that uh, that particular religion would leave in him a respect for that which was valuable and uh, which which he continued to regard as as, as good and true, um, even in in the religion that he had converted from. Um, it's it's a uh, it's a religion that would not have necessarily cut him off from being able to value. Um, that other tradition and, and, and make use of it as he still knew how to do. Um, so yeah, I, I really love, uh, I really love that, that reference to offices and the way that it turns the father's work into something, um, into something sacred, something hierophantic, um, the shoe shining, uh, edges over into, sh into foot washing, uh, in a particular kind of way. Anything that you would add to that, Matthew? Yeah, I might just uh, make explicit what we've already hinted at, that uh, while he converted to, to the Baha'i faith, he's he was raised Baptist, uh, specifically. And um, I think even just the, the recognition of this being on Sunday, uh, I mean, that's, that's the Lord's Day. It's intrinsically connected to this concept of sacrifice. And also, I think, of forgiveness. Um, there's there's an, a recognition of, of the chronic anger in this household. But uh, in the poem, we see him, uh, the poet, acknowledging more than just anger in the household. Um, that uh, even despite this anger he's able to see that his father was demonstrating this love in unspoken ways. And I think that recognition allows the poet to forgive only if in part some of that, that, uh, that anger. And at the same time in forgiving his father, Hayden is realizing he has things that he needs forgiveness for too. The indifference that he's treated his father with, or the, um, the inability to, to appreciate the intangible or the tangible expressions of love. That his father had given. So I think this concept of forgiveness and, and grace and and recognizing real sin, but also recognizing real love. I, th I think these things, just by virtue of them being tied to the idea of, of the uh, divine service on Sundays, is bleeding over into the poem in some ways. Yeah, that's good. Now, shifting to the other poem. Um, what Hayden's Those Winter Sundays hints at, uh, the whipping deals with pretty explicitly. Um, so, Matthew, in that poem, what does the speaker witness and how does it connect with the speaker's experience? In this second poem, the, the poet's telling the, uh, the story of a child who's being beaten by an old woman across the way. And we know this isn't a one-time occurrence. Um, he uses the word again. She's whipping the boy again, he says. Um, and regardless of one's view of corporal punishment, uh, the woman's treatment here is, is clearly beyond anything acceptable. She's chasing this terrified boy down as he crashes through the foliage. She finally corners him and beats him with a stick. 
and and so savagely that the stick eventually breaks in the process. Um, and throughout this whole process, we see the old woman loudly proclaiming her own innocence. Uh, the poet says how how the beating is justifiable. It's it's her goodness, his wrongs that are that are making this uh, this situation necessary. Um, the poet, of course, and, and we as the audience know this mistreatment of the child is is not and can never be justified. But the, the poem isn't just describing what's happening across the way. Instead, the crying child's tears are falling like rain, the poet says, on his own wounded memories, and thus watered um, his personal memories of being beaten as a child are springing up, his head clenched between his assailant's knees, the inability to escape um, the blows and, and the terror of it all. We assume, I think, that the one beating him is a parent, but it's... it's uh, important to note that the words father and mother are deliberately avoided. Um, instead, we read only of a face that I no longer knew or loved. And I don't think that's because it isn't a parent that's being spoken of here. I think it's showing how this uh, the actions of what this person is doing kind of strip them of the right to call themselves a father or mother. Um, at length, the poet says he's left alone solving in the room. And from that moment, we switch back from the memory to the present, where the beating across the way has also come to an end. Uh, the woman, again, note the lack of the term mother here, or grandmother, or whoever it is. Uh, the woman is spent. She's leaning against this tree, her fury having been purged, Hayden writes, likening the process to this kind of catharsis. Um, and in this, these last two lines, we get a hint of what she needs to be purged of. She's been avenged in part, Hayden writes, for lifelong hidings she has had to bear. And uh, I think that kind of summarizes the poem to some extent. What else, uh, anything else in there to, to draw out or pay attention to? That last phrase, the lifelong, lifelong hiding she has had to bear, makes it sound like she herself was beaten like this as a child. And it it raises the question, first of all, is the narrator doing this to his own children? And if not, why not? Um, I, I it, it certainly seems to me that he's not. Um, the, the, the poem seems to be suggesting that he's somehow gotten past this. Why was he able to and this other woman was not able to? And, and what do we do with that? You know, is this a is this a constant threat for him to, to pass on this cycle of abuse that, that he's been through? Or uh, is it is it something he's managed to overcome entirely? Uh, and, and because he doesn't. He doesn't explicitly judge, you know, but because he's he's describing um, rather than prescribing, it's it's hard to know. It's, it just leaves it as a mystery to us. Yeah, I, I there. One of the things that I love about both of these poems is the way that there is there is a clear perspective that the speaker has on what on what's what's witnessed or what's remembered. But that commentary doesn't bleed over into into everything. It doesn't necessarily tell you um, all of what you should see in everything. Um, you know, there there's there's a certain degree to which you have to 
um, accept what the poem does of immersing you into that moment that is witnessed or remembered and then learn what the poet would think about that through that experience um, instead of just sort of a running commentary about how to feel and how to think and how to judge. Um, you recently, Michael, you recently wrote an essay about something that you called, um, is it calic distance? That's how I pronounce it. I don't know that it's a real word. Sure. Um, I'm not really certain whether what I see in these two poems is that exactly, uh, but something has changed in each speaker's attitude towards the ambiguous adults in their narrative. So, um, what is the adult speaker seeing that the child doesn't see, and what accounts for that alteration of vision? That's the thing that led me to kind of connect these poems to that to to what you spoke about in that essay. Yeah, uh, the essay was for the Fortnightly Review, um, and it's available for free online. If you just search for Calic Distance, I'm pretty sure I coined the phrase. Um, Calic is from the Greek word for beauty. And so calic distance is what happens when you are sufficiently distanced from a work of art so that what the artist meant as a critique, you accept as praise. So um, my example in the in the essay, I, I have actually a number of examples, but um, one of my examples is the the yellow fog in. Uh, in T.S. Eliot's The Love Song of Jafford Prufrock. Uh, I've always loved that description, and it makes me want to be in a city with this yellow fog, but it's clear that Eliot's narrator is kind of disgusted by the yellow fog. It's a description of um, of air pollution, of course. And, but because I grew up in the suburbs without any air pollution and certainly a long way from the sort of place where you could just walk through the city to go to a party... Um, I, uh, I I have always experienced that as a as a description of beauty. So the the essay is is an, an attempt to figure out why you can so drastically misread a work of art um, to to get the exact opposite effect that it's supposed to have. I don't know that that's entirely what's going on here. I certainly don't think that's happening in the whipping. I think it is kind of happening. In those winter Sundays, in as much as you you can have a kind of calic distance from your own past, in that the things you did not recognize at the time as being beautiful actually were, because beauty is everywhere in the world, and we just sometimes don't see it because we're too inured to it. Um, but I think that those winter Sundays has a much more moralistic tinge, uh, rather than an aesthetic or calic one to to um to Hayden's past it's it's not so much that he's recognizing that what was happening without him realizing it was beautiful although i i think in putting it into a poem he makes it beautiful uh i i think it's it's much more a realization that there was this incredible act of goodness happening in his world that he was completely blind to, and in fact probably resented his father for, if I had to guess. Um, and because of that, he's suddenly able to recognize that in this man in whom he saw so much cruelty, so much anger, that, that phrase chronic angers 
is such a it's such a wonderful one, right? Because it means not only not only is it happening over and over again, there's multiple forms of it, and maybe it's coming from multiple people. And he he can't see it because he's so close to it, but there's goodness in this guy. Um and and so I I don't know again I don't know if that's calic distance but it's some sort of distance that's a that's a parallel to that. Now I don't I don't see that so much in the whipping. I don't I don't see where he thinks there's anything beautiful about or good about what what he went through as a child. Um nor am I able reading it to uh to supply any kind of beauty to to that sort of child abuse. I I can do it in um in those winter Sundays because of the, the beauty of his descriptions of, of, of his father starting the, the fire. But in, uh, in the whipping, I don't, I don't see any way into that. Do you, or are you mostly thinking about those winter Sundays, David? I'm mostly thinking about those winter Sundays, but in both there is, in both there's an alteration of perspective that allows him to, um, in some way see into, into a character in the story that otherwise would only have been the villain. Right. Or he sees or this woman's the, pain, the danger. Yes. In a way that he wouldn't um, have been able to, if he were the child being beaten. And that's not, um, I, I think you're right to say that there, there, there's a moral thing going on here, but it's a moral thing that happens through the medium of a narrative thing. And sympathetic alignment isn't precisely beauty, but the ability to sympathize, to, to sympathize with someone, to turn into um, a character with whom, for whom you can you can have a, a, a sort of empathy. Um, uh, narratively, that is that is uh, an, an aesthetic um, thing. So, so for for me, for whom these are only characters in a poem. I am having an aesthetic experience. This this is the art for me, um, and he is he is in his retelling of the story, um, using that art in order to to alter uh, alter also also my perspective on her. Um, but I I, uh, I I think it's mainly something that I was thinking about with those winter Sundays. I mean that that first stanza, if you take out, no one ever thanked him. That could be that could be Seamus Heaney, mm-hmm. right? You know, I'm, I'm thinking of those 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 deeply uh, those very loving descriptions of farmer hands <laughs> that you get in uh, in a, a Heaney poem, like a, his his poem "Digging." Um, there, there's there's a feel that's very much. Um, aesthetically transforming the way that you think about um, the body of someone who labors hard. Uh, and then in the, in the third stanza, when it talks about uh, speaking indifferently to him who had driven out the cold, right? Like not him who had made the house warm, or him who had started the fire, or him who had worked hard, or him who provided for me. It's him who had driven out the cold. Like for 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 one line, the man becomes like a sun god. Right, Saint Patrick. Yeah, yeah. There, there's something, um, you know, and and that is also a, a, a kind of a, a, an aesthetic effect. Um, it's 
it reminds me of uh, a little bit of that essay in which G.K. Chesterton empties his pockets and starts talking about the symbolism of the ordinary things he has in his pockets. I was thinking Chesterton um, too, but I was thinking the one where he talks about the uh, the walk don't walk symbol as being like a a, a smoke signal essentially. <laughs> Any thoughts on on this angle, Matthew? On the on the, the 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 sort of transformative vision that's going on here in these poems? Mm-hmm. Um, I think you guys really cover the concept of, of calic distance here, and I agree that it's only in those winter Sundays. Um, in the whipping itself, when we look at the, kind of the transition from jesting the old woman as as um, for lack of a better term, evil or, or wrong. I mean, um, it, it's fascinating just to compare the, the first description of her where she's shouting her goodness and, and his wrongs to the neighborhood. And then we know, of course, none of that's true. But at the end, we, we do get to see the wrongs done to her. Um, so that's not what she's announcing. That's not what she's publicizing. But that's really kind of the the thing that's sitting there behind all this to some extent. And it's what makes her pitiable in a way that she would otherwise not be in the poem. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I love about this poem is the way that uh, you have the speaker um Presenting how uh, how memory and how witnessing something can can lead to sort of a, a, a changed self understanding or a, a new sort of window into into that perspective, um, and that leads me to sort of instinctively begin applying these poems to my own life, <laughs> especially those winter Sundays. That's one that I identify with much more closely. Um, what have these poems evoked in you, Matthew? I think uh, I get very much what you guys are saying, how you can read this as if it was a description of of a rural setting, that is to say, those winter Sundays. And when I read it, I can't help but think of my own childhood to some extent. I mean, we, we literally used a wood stove to heat our home. And my father would likewise get up every morning very early to stoke the coals, get the fire going. And uh, living in Saskatchewan, Canada, of course, I, I think we tended to... Uh, have much better insulated homes than than perhaps would have been true for Hayden as a child. Um, so I, I don't think we would have had the blue back the blue black cold of of Hayden's home. But still, in the early hours, in the dark, the cold, and, um, my father would arise and 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 stoke the fire. And also, like the father in Hayden's poem, my father also. Uh, worked primarily in physical labor, physical labor kind of jobs. We had a small farm, but even in winter, my father would be outside daily in the cold, working on this or that vehicle in the open, uh, chopping wood and doing things like that. And my mother, too, uh, did a lot of physical uh, labor just by virtue of, of the kind of life we lived. She'd be out splitting wood, too, hauling inside, uh, canning vegetables, running a massive garden in the summer. I mean, we would plant four or five hundred hills of potatoes alone, plus everything else. And this kind of physical labor just to keep uh, daily life going was something that was was part of my parents' life. 
uh, still is, I suppose, but uh, um, our farm wasn't really particularly profitable, though not for, not, not for lack of trying. I mean, it, it was just too small in some ways, and the weather would sometimes not cooperate or often. Um, but we had a good childhood, and I think that's thanks to the hard work and sacrifice of my parents. They made this stable, loving home. They gave us this good life. They, they built the fire and, and drove the cold away, if you want to put it that way. And that equipped us, my, myself and my siblings, for success in the various lives we've built since then. I, I do want to clarify, you know, it's not this one-to-one parallel. I, I think my, my, my family's home was much more vocal about their love and uh, not so much on the chronic anger side of things. So I want to clarify that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. but, but reading the poem, I, I can't help but... Uh, reflect on on the other hidden physical expressions of love that must have been and were woven into into our daily lives. So I, I understand why Winter Sundays is, is kind of one of the most taught and anthologized poems. Um, I get that. It helps us to to see in new ways the sacrificial love of our parents, even parents who might not have been particularly expressive of, about that kind of love in language. So I think I think a poem like this, at least with me, can help uh, to to more intentionally honor father and mother more deeply as we learn to see their love at work in our lives. So it, it's a it, it's a very nice poem. I like it very much. And as I say, I don't really have any personal parallels I'll draw with the whipping. Um. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Michael? Yeah, I mean, I'm I can echo a lot of the. The, the more general things that Matthew says, I did not grow up on a farm, so I don't, <laughs> I don't have any memories like that. I, and, and, you know, we had central heat and didn't have to use it that much because it was Metro Atlanta. Um, but, but really those winter Sundays, just if, if you read this and don't feel like an ungrateful brat for the way you thought about your parents when you were a teenager and beyond, um, I don't think you're reading very closely and, and and part of the reason that the poem is so popular is because we we all know we all know the many times that we have failed to honor our father and mother and and the, the times that we've been angry at them or embarrassed at them when in fact they were on our side you know and and we realize that when it's too late to do anything about it and and maybe we also realize that they loved us even in our ungratefulness. Yeah. There's some things that we can only see in retrospect because we have to be adults to see it. You know, uh, it's, it, it's not until, you know, it, it wasn't until I was really an adult and responsible for doing, doing so many of these things for myself that I realized how much trouble they were. <laughs> And I just sort of, you know, presumed they'd always be there, you know, um, the the food in the refrigerator and the fact that the heat was on and um, the fact that we had, you know, a working phone and that the car ran and, um, you know, all, all of those sorts of things. You know, I, uh, the, the, the enormous trouble of being an adult <laughs> – was not really one that I thought anything about as a kid. Uh, I just sort of thought that these things these things were just sort of there 
and then and then I grew up and I had to do it all myself and suddenly um you know it's a rather it's a rather conventional feeling but I, but I feel like that that is that is part of uh part of becoming an adult is suddenly realizing oh wait there's this whole side of things that I just I did not appreciate the way I ought to have. Well, and and um, David, that's another reason I think the detail about the shining shining the shoes is so important, because you can say, oh, well, he, you know, he made the fire because he would have been cold if he didn't. Uh, but there's absolutely no reason he had to polish the narrator's shoes. Yeah, like that's a that's a pure act of grace. Well, when you consider too that. You know, to get biographical, and this is this is again something that he's omitted. Um, I think in order to make the poem more broadly applicable, like he doesn't want to make this a poem that's simply about his experience. He wants us, um, he wants to lure us into uh, expanding its significance. I think uh, he never once acknowledges that this is not his father, not even his stepfather. Right. Foster father. It's his, it's his foster father. Um, you know, this is this is someone who has, of his own free will, taken in this child and is raising him. Um, not perfect, you know, far far from perfectly. Um, you know, again, this is the house of chronic angers. We can't forget this. We can't forget that. But this is still a family that took in a child that it didn't have to, they didn't have to take in. Um, you know, when you read the, you know, the, the ways in which, uh, Robert Hayden was, was small and bullied. Um, the shining of the shoes maybe takes on a different, uh, somewhat of a different significance. Um, you know, and yeah, uh, yeah, it's 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 beautiful stuff. Um, you know, I, I I joked about this with you all. Uh, I think uh, as we were sort of exchanging messages about this week. Now, d- dear listeners, the reason why we're recording now and and not last week, and why this is this episode is dropping um, for you uh, in March as opposed to uh, February, is you know I live in Texas and. All, Texas decided to have a real winter for a week. Um, and so there was, uh, we lost power and I had to burn such wood as I could find in our fireplace. Uh, and my family was, you know, in the living room and I, and here's me, you know, soft hand city boy trying to figure out how to get a fire to go. Um, and just counting logs knowing that I didn't have any more logs and feeling just the, the enormous weight of my wife and children's, not just their comfort, but their health, um, in my, in my ability to to keep this fire going. And I kept thinking about this poem, um, and, and, uh, you know, yeah, it's 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 been it's been haunting me for weeks, so I'm I'm very happy to be talking about it now. <laughs> Are there ways in which you reflect on parenthood differently because of this, Matthew? I think so. I mean, 
it's impossible to, as a parent, I think, to not be aware of all the things you do that your children are unaware of. They, they just assume this or that happens. And um, that that could, I suppose, in some cases, um, lead almost to a sense of annoyance with children or for their ingratitude. I'm not, I'm not saying that's the way I feel towards my children. My children are all young and I don't expect them to be thanking me for things. But um, I, I could see how a, a parent could become almost bitter. But in general, I don't think that really happens. I think parents just recognize the need to to give, to sacrifice, to, to do things for their children. Um, this this love that isn't necessarily logical or, or coherent is it, just a thing that is. Um, I think it's a, a God-given thing. And so learning in some ways, maybe you're not, even if you're, um, your parents are gone, you could look at this poem and, and learn to see those things you're doing as services to your children, holy things, holy orders, um, and to, to render them with, with thanks to God for the ability to do it, to have these children to look after. Um, I, I, I think that, yeah, we don't just need to read this poem and say, oh, this is how we can regret what we haven't said in thanks to our parents. We can use it as an encouragement to serve our own children more fully and and more holily. Or in the case of this actual man, the children of others. <laughs> mhm. Mhm. Yeah. Uh, my family, my wife and I, we do foster some children as well. So there's some practical parallels for us, I think, in in this poem. Well, gentlemen, I've really appreciated this chance to talk uh, about the things that this poem, these poems in particular, uh, raise in my mind. But I I know there's still a lot that's unsaid that's worth saying. So what are some angles that we might have pursued with Hayden in in these poems? And if you have any recommendations, what else might our listeners enjoy if they enjoyed this? Michael? I have uh, two recommendations, uh, both poems about learning to appreciate your parents, or not poems, excuse me, but short stories about learning to appreciate your parents. Um, the first is Flannery O'Connor's story, Everything That Rises Must Converge, which is about, it's a, it's a story that is set up for the entire running time for you to think that the mother in the story is terrible, and then something happens at the last minute, O'Connor style that completely turns things around and it is devastating. Uh, so I won't spoil that, but um, everything that rises must converge is the name of that. And the other is a, a, a story we did an episode on uh, a few years back called Neighbor Rasiki by Willa Cather, which is, which is really about um, really about a, a father who, who sacrifices to the utmost for his, his son and his daughter-in-law in a way I find supremely moving because it reminds me so much of my own father. And I think if you listen to that episode, you can probably, my my recollection is that I get choked up even talking about it. Um, so Neighbor Rosicki by Willa Cather. And that, that episode must be from 2011 or 2012. It's it's pretty far back. I remember the room I was in when I recorded it. Uh, so that's why I, I remember what year it is. 
or the uh, the kind of general year of it. But anyway, Matthew. Yeah, um, I guess one final thing I want to just comment on with these poems. We've we've been talking uh, quite a bit about child abuse in in this uh, episode, and. Uh, I've known children who suffered severe physical abuse far beyond even what we're seeing in the whipping. And uh, while it's important to understand that the narrator is able with the distance of time to see the love of his father despite the difficulties of home life, that doesn't mean child abuse itself is something we can or should diminish or excuse in any way. Yes, thank you for saying um, that. Yeah. Yes. And, and and it's something we really see in the whipping. It, it, abuse like this has devastating consequences, not only for the child abused, but for generations to come. Um, Hayden gets at this, you know, when we have the mother who who um, is beating the child, you know, as a form of working on some of her own issues. And as you said, Michael, that's likely including the abuse she faced as a child. So these these cycles of, of, of violence and abuse are very difficult to interrupt. And I think they explain in part kind of that biblical language about the idea of the sins of the fathers being visited upon the children to the third and fourth generations. These kind of things can initiate cycles of violence that really affect generations to come. So I just wanted to to make that kind of uh, last comment there on that. Um, as for other works that writers might enjoy, I think I'd suggest maybe some of the short stories of, of Sinclair Ross. Um, he's, he's a Canadian uh, writer. We 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 have in you know the winter those winter Sundays this idea that um, the hard life and the hard work, uh, hard uh, employment of the father is mirrored to some extent in his roughness in, in family life. Sinclair Ross's writing focuses on the lives of everyday people living during the Great Depression on, on the prairies in Canada. So if you want a character study of the prototypical hardworking husband or father, or in this case, farmers usually, um, these, these people who are unable to express their feelings to their family, I, I think you'd be hard pressed to find better examples than in Ross's work. Uh, the Lamp at Noon in particular is, is probably the most famous story of this sort. It, it deals with this husband who's desperate to look after his family in the midst of this depression, um, but he's unable to connect with his wife um, who needs this emotional connection. And it's it's, it's quite a, a tragic story. I, I am thinking maybe I might lead an episode on, on one of these stories of Ross's anyhow further down the line. So readers or listeners might want to stay tuned for that. And uh, that's that's maybe the suggestion I would offer is the work of Sinclair Ross. Excellent. Well, thank you for that. Um, I, for whatever reason, uh, I am a I'm a sucker for that subject, I, and maybe it maybe it has to do with the fact that um, my grandfather's hands were made of calluses, and you know the. Yeah, I, I just I, lo I love I love every bit of uh, every bit of that because um, I, I, I identify anyway. Well, dear listeners, uh, by all means, uh, look those up, uh, take those recommendations, and uh, we'd love to know what you think. What is up for next week? 
We are going to be talking about uh, Pope Blessed Leo XIII's 1891 encyclical Rerum Novarum, which is the basis for much of contemporary Roman Catholic social doctrine. Interesting. 18 what? 1891. Huh. Cool. All right. Well, that's not something I'm familiar with, but I look forward to getting familiar with it. In the meanwhile, dear listeners, if you'd like to give us feedback on this episode, uh, you can do so by emailing us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can uh, post comments on the blog, christianhumanist.org, in the show notes. You can also contact us on Facebook and on Twitter at uh, CH Radio Network. In the meanwhile, I'm David Grubbs on behalf of Michael Farmer and Matthew Block, wishing you all grand weeks. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a program on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and our editor is well, Michael Farmer. So I'll sign off with Luther as always. Let your sin be strong, but let your faith be stronger. <laughs>